Hey, it's Erica. I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to Global News What Happened to ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. John Valanthin's voice echoes in the darkness. How, how many of you? 13. Brilliant. He was one of two UK divers on a mission to find 12 boys and their soccer coach who became trapped inside the Tumlung cave. We are coming. It's okay. It's okay. Many people are coming. Many, many people. We are the first. Many people come. This five-minute video was what the world had hoped for. The wild boar soccer team was safe and had survived somehow despite the dark and wet condition. Nine days after they were trapped, it was something to celebrate. But now that they were found came an impossible task, getting them out safely. I'm Erica Bella, and this is part two of Global News What Happened to the Thai Cave Rescue. In the previous episode, we shared with you how the boys and their coach found themselves stuck in Tamlong Cave in 2018. The incident quickly captured the world's attention, and an international team was assembled to find them. Rick Stanton, a world-renowned cave diver from the UK, alongside his partner, John Valanthan, found the soccer team nine days after they went missing. Rick and John spoke to the boys, and gave them reassurance that people were hard at work trying to find them. So John took some video of them, uh, which, I mean, you could go out and say they're all alive, but having that proof of life in that video, uh, and let's face it, quite happy faces, and John did a bit of cheerleading with them, that was, you know, that was a golden moment, if you like. Uh, And when we came out, we only spent about half an hour with them, We knew we had to get the message out. It was going to be late by the time we got out, and we knew there'd be a lot of work and meetings. Rick and John left through very difficult conditions, taking with them the camera the Thai Navy SEALs gave them and returned to the mouth of the cave where they were met by the SEALs like they normally would after a dive. We told them that they're all alive, and normally they helped us out the water and helped us with all their equipment. The moment we said they were alive, they just went off. I'm not, I'm not being critical. They just went off and had a planning meeting and left us to our own devices. And that footage was put on the internet around the world even before or as we were exiting the cave ourselves. As the videos circulated around the world, Rick said he felt a bit uneasy. If I had been asked or wanted you know, for advice, I would have said, I'm not sure that I would put that video footage out there at that, that stage. I think you needed to think about the implications because it only needed to rain and that would have, who knows what would have happened. It was nothing short of a miracle. The soccer team was alive and had survived by drinking water that dripped into the cave, but they had no food. And soon after they were found alive, military medics and Navy SEAL divers risked their lives to join them inside the cave. The soccer team was put on a special liquid diet to keep them going. While this was all happening, the Thai military and those on the outside looked for a way to rescue them. The authorities were 
and rightly so, looking at every other option, pumping the cave out, well, we knew that that could never happen. Looking for alternative in- entrances, there was a lot of compelling evidence that there was not another entrance, although there were cave, uh, hill, uh, uh, holes on the hillside above them. We didn't believe that that was a possibility. And then all sorts of wacky ideas like putting a pipe through to the boys and, and for them to crawl out, which wouldn't, you know, would not never going to be feasible but there were a lot of things considered by the you know those in charge but their sort of main mantra was they were only going to take the no risk option and unfortunately in this situation that's that's not possible finding them alive was a huge first step but getting them out was a massive problem this was one of the largest caves in thailand and with the monsoon season starting early it created very difficult conditions for a rescue The 12 boys and their soccer coach were trapped, and people all over the world were offering their help and expertise. You may even remember Elon Musk offered a mini submarine from his SpaceX rocket company to help with the cave rescue. He even sent engineers from his company, SpaceX and the Boring Company, to Thailand as well. Another idea that was being considered was leaving the soccer team inside the cave. You know, it's well known that the monsoon lasts three or four months. They were saying, oh, we'll leave them in there for three or four months. But uh, again, Vern, the expert on the cave, said sometimes the water takes months and months to go down. It doesn't go down to Christmas or new early New Year. And in fact, that year, it was so severe, the water didn't go down until March. So it would have been nine months they would have been trapped in the cave before they could have got out without diving. And even then, when the water went down, the cave was blocked and you needed to excavate the way in. So that, um, furthermore, when the cave was in full flood, we would not have been able to get to them with the best will in the world. That would have been impossible. And it would have been impossible to stack three or four months worth of food for them. That, that's just an impossible task. The atmosphere was never going to improve. The water would have risen and the sort of uh, the, uh, reduced their their volume of airspace they had and lessened their exchange sort of area. So it was never ever going to get better. And the other thing, of course, is you know it's a very damp uh, atmosphere, high relative humidity. They were already getting breathing infections and you know cuts and were infected. Uh, you know medically, I'm not certain they they would have survived it either. Rick proposed getting them out the way that they got in, and the only way to do that was to dive them out. It was a dangerous proposition. None of them would have been saved. So that's that. So for, for most of the people, that was a bit of a no-brainer. They they were effectively going to be left to die from whatever method was taken, unless we extracted them through the water the way they had come in, which seemed the obvious thing to do. Rick is an expert cave diver, and divers like him are able to take cumbersome equipment on dives. Except in this case, extracting the team meant taking out inexperienced, scared people through the darkness for hours. That is because a return trip from the mouth of the cave to the location of the soccer team took 11 hours for experienced divers to make. I suggested to John, we're going to have to sedate them make them inert packages and then we could just swim them out as if they're a tube full of camping gear or, or, or some of the other equipment we might take into a cave for exploration. So that's where that came about and it was announced to the authorities on the sort of same time when we were having the ethical discussion because they were saying how we, could we get them out and I said the best way is to sedate them 
everybody raised their eyebrows because they knew how dangerous that would be. Um, but I still think thought it was less dangerous than bringing them out um, conscious. So I found myself saying, actually, from my point of view, that's non-negotiable. That is the only way we're bringing them out. Rick ran the idea by Dr. Richard Harris. He's a cave diver and also an anesthesiologist. Rick recalls the conversation. He was a uh, helicopter medic, so he's used to treating people in the field, car accidents and things like that. But more significantly, he had what I'm going to describe as a larger-than-life personality because I knew that it was massive, massive, not only personal but professional risk. And I felt he was the only one of all those five that I knew that would perhaps be prepared to take on that risk. So I put the idea to him and he vetoed it absolutely immediately. No one had ever been underwater before, sedated. Dr. Richard Harris called Rick's plan crazy, Rick recalls. He considered it from his medical knowledge that this had never been done before and he didn't necessarily know if it would work. I approached it from the opposite side. I couldn't see why it wouldn't work as long as we took a lot of care over various elements, other elements of the extraction, like making sure the air was never compromised. They always had air surrounding their face in the full face mask. After much consultation and hand-wringing among the rescue team, a plan was formulated. Ketamine would be given to the trapped team right before extraction. The sedative would make them unconscious their hands would be bound behind them. And to make sure their breathing was uninterrupted, they would have an oxygen mask covering their entire face as Rick, John, and a team of divers guided them back to the mouth of the cave. To make sure their very risky, innovative plan worked, they needed the right people to help them. There were allegedly 5,000 people on site from people washing clothes, providing food, everything. But the actual cave was under the control of the Thai Navy SEALs, and they were under the control of the army that controlled the outside. We were getting our messages through to the Thai Navy SEALs, often by the American uh, Air Force personnel, who acted as our greatest advocates. But we weren't certain that our message of what we needed to do, as in dive the boys out and sedate them, was going up higher. We're not sure that that was transmitted to a to even the government, uh, the military, or the, more importantly, the government ministers, although we had been brought in by the government ministers. A decision had been made, and they were running out of time. And every weather forecast we got said that it would rain in three days' time, and the next day it said three days' time. So we always had that three days, but clearly that would not last forever, and one day it was going to rain. So that was the biggest, biggest pressure. We had to act before the cave was in huge flood again. Josh Morris is originally from Utah, but he moved to Thailand in 2000 to teach English. It was supposed to be a temporary thing, but he fell in love with a country that has been his home ever since. In 2018, he heard about the boys trapped inside the Tom Luang Cave. He was an experienced rock climber and had his own business, so he had lent gear and staff members to help with the search and rescue efforts. I had no intention of going up. My 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 brother-in-law is already there and connected. And 
I just didn't see a reason to go up. And I did make a couple phone calls and I called the police and I called some army people that I knew and offered my services. And it just seemed really um, scattered and people didn't seem like they could take me on even if I did show up. So it just didn't feel like it was worth going up there because I didn't want to create more trouble for other people. But then Josh got a call from a friend. He kind of just made this comment. He said, I see it's some adventure company that you have. And I said, come on, man, what are you talking about? Like, I've made some phone calls, like my brother-in-law is there. I sent a team up there and he said, okay, whatever you say, you know better than I do. I guess all that practice and all that adventure and all the training that you've been doing the last 15 years, I mean, why use it now if there's there's no point, right? And he just kind of got got under my skin a little bit. And uh, so then I hung up and I called Mario, uh, who I had sent up that day. And I said, Mario, what do you think? Should I come up? And Mario said, I really think it'd be good if you came up. Your language skills would be useful. Josh made the four-hour trip to Tom Luang Cave on July 6th, two weeks after the boys were first reported missing. When he arrived, he registered with the Department of Disaster Prevention and Mitigation and with the Thai Navy SEALs. He spent time building relationships And he even reconnected with high-ranking military officials he knew before the cave rescue. All these relationships would play a crucial role. He noticed almost immediately there was a disconnect between the different rescue groups. I don't want to say it's like disorganization, but I felt a little bit like there were some parts of the puzzle that weren't being connected. And so when I went up, I was just trying to figure out, well, who can I get connected with to offer some services and to be helpful? While Josh was at the cave site, he was introduced to Rick, John, and Vern, the three UK divers. They had a rescue plan which involved sedating and diving the boys out of the cave. And that's kind of where everything started to shift and my my role became very different. So John and Rick basically laid down the the context for me, which was how big of a space the boys were in, what the oxygen level was. Um, what would happen if the water came up and flooded, you know, how much space they would be left with, um, how much the water could raise before things would not be passable. And it, basically through that whole conversation, I finally got to a point where I asked him, I said, what happens if you don't dive? And he said, everybody will die. And I said, what happens if you do dive? And he said, some of them might have a chance to live. And I said, well, what does that mean? And they said, we don't know. It's never been tried before. Conversations and briefings Josh had been a part of involving senior officials with the Thai Navy SEALs painted a very different picture. And I called a senior official that I had met and said, I have some information I think you should hear. And I kind of relayed the same thing. And basically what I relayed was what what I then did for over a series of meetings that took place after this, which was basically the level of oxygen is dropping that means the level of co2 is probably increasing and once the co2 gets to a high enough level and the oxygen gets to a low enough level then uh, people will have a hard time breathing and they'll eventually die additionally there's a limited window for when food can be delivered or when a dive could operation could take place once the cave floods they won't be able to get any food in and you won't be able to resupply the boys and provide medical care, etc. And basically the idea was, look, there's the only real guarantee here is that no diving means the boys will die. And diving means there's a chance for them to live. And what I would typically say to senior officials when I met with them, and I met with quite a few different ones, but I would say 
Sir, the only guarantee I can give you is that if you don't dive, everybody will die. If you do dive, some may have a chance to live. I don't envy you, sir. You have a decision to make. You have two choices. Both are terrible. It's just one is worse than the other. And I'm lucky because all I have to do is deliver this information. And that's pretty much the message that I said. And I think I may have gotten that from John and Rick. And that led me from the first senior official to another meeting, to some phone calls with even more senior officials until eventually I was on a phone with um, and actually speaking with Minister of the Interior, delivering a similar message. This was all unfolding as the rescue operations experienced their first loss of life. Petty Officer Saman Gunan, a former Thai Navy diver, had been delivering air tanks when he ran out of oxygen for the return trip and lost consciousness on his way out. There was a shift in the energy just from that, and I wasn't unaware of his death at the time that I was doing my work. I didn't realize until later in the day. So my assumption is it's his death combined with me arriving at the right time, combined with people being a bit more... Um, ready to listen to certain things because there was a death. You know, there were just all of these things kind of came together at this right moment. A meeting was held with a large group of senior officials, department commanders, and different military ranks to look at the options that were on the table. In that meeting, it was it was pretty much everything. Everybody had their voice heard, but ultimately it was really about hearing the dive plan. And then after that, that meeting with all those senior officials, there was then the smaller meeting that took place after that, which had just a few people. It had Dr. Harris and it had some of the British divers and myself and the U.S. Air Force and some senior officials from the Department of Disaster Prevention and Mitigation and some senior Army and Navy officials and the Minister of the Interior. And that's that's when the final briefing was made, where I actually translated the briefing word for word. Um, and then that briefing was recorded and all of the risk mitigation and all of the factors that have been put into place to make this to make this plan a reality uh, kind of came out in that meeting. And that's when the Minister of the Interior said, OK, this is what we're going to do. We've looked at all of the different plans and we're going to go ahead with this dive. And tomorrow is the prep day and we'll dive as soon as we're ready. And so once you had that top down, really very senior level person giving that kind of order, then everything kind of fell into place the next day. It was official. A team of the world's best cave divers would rescue the soccer team, taking them out of the cave one by one with the eyes of the world watching them. On Sunday, July 8th at 11 a.m., the rescue mission began. We had rehearsed very, very carefully what we were going to do. We'd even walked through it. So everybody knew their place, their order, and what the plan was. Uh, clearly, Harry was going to sedate the boys. Now, there were, uh, there were some air chambers, and we did station some divers there to help um, with thunder swaps to, if the boys' airs were low, or to help us manhandle the boy. By now, six, seven days after we'd found them, the water had continued to go down and there was a bit where we had to walk about 100 yards and that actually added another tier of complexity because you had to put the boys in a litter and then carry them over that bit, whereas before we could have just swum them all the way. So the plan was good. 
except that it had never, ever been tested as in a boy or a human sedated underwater. And that was a complete unknown element. So you can imagine that Dr. Richard Harris was quite nervous about the whole thing. The cave has some stretches that are more than 10 meters high, while others are a tight squeeze through water-filled passages, and at times against the current in complete darkness. Remember, a round trip to where the soccer team was located took 11 hours to complete, so the rescue of the team had to be split up over a few days. And on top of that, the ketamine that Dr. Richard Harris was administering would only last about 30 to 40 minutes. The divers who were with the boys were going to have to actually administer sedative and inject the boys. Now, none of us have injected anyone before, so we had to do uh, a 10-minute course in injecting people. Harry went to university for nine years to become an anesthesiologist. We had a 10-minute course on how to inject someone. Jason Mallison, a British cave diver with over 25 years' experience, was the first one to take a boy through the first underwater section of the cave, following a rope line to guide him through the winding and murky waters. Rick and other divers waited on the other side of the first passage. So I was to stay and watch a couple of the boys come through the first underwater section where Dr. Craig Challen was going to be there to, and he, he had more experience of ketamine than anyone and he could uh, assess their level of consciousness and then I could report back. We, you know, we talked about the inert boys, but I was there waiting with do, uh, Dr. Craig Sharon uh, and the line, this important gu- guideline, started twitching uh, and then Jason came along with the first boy and we don't know, he's been underwater for maybe 15 minutes to get to that point. We don't know what's going to turn up, whether it's going to be someone that's breathing or someone that's clearly drowned. Jason just turned up, put the book, sort of put, he, he didn't, you know, from where he was lying like a seal on a beach, plopped the boy there. We just stared at the boy and, and Jason looked up at us and said, he's still breathing. And so that was the first clue that this might actually work. The relief he felt in that moment was short-lived. They got the young boy out of the water into recovery position and then carried him a short distance on foot to the next area where Jason would have to dive with him again. This is only about a fifth of the dis- total distance. So this it's, it's not, a, not a home run by any means, but it was a, a good start. And I could report back to Harry that everything seemed to be going well. Rick described the harrowing system they designed to get the soccer team out. We called it the process. Every, you know, the four of us, when it was our turn to bring a boy out, you'd, you'd meet the boy, you'd dress him in a wetsuit, you'd put the equipment on him, give him a a Xanax tablet to calm him down, bring him down to Harry, uh, where he'd give a couple of injections. uh, And at that point, the boy would be unconscious and he'd put a mask on. Now, now one of the big things about cave diving is redundancy. So you have, if you need one of something, you'd always have two or three. So if anything failed, you've got to back up. But the situation with these boys and this face mask and the seal was that there was no redundancy to that. That was the most important thing because that's that mask was on his face and there was nothing else. If that got dislodged and flooded, that would be the end of it. So 
it was hugely critical how we fitted it and we spent sometimes we would spend five minutes making sure it was perfect checking there were no leaks and then as we dived out with that boy just making sure that we protected his head and the mask at all costs now i'd called it or i i termed them as packages harry called it the stanton inert package plan but uh, as much as you do to disguise the fact of what you're doing and when we're talking about the, the, the procedure, when you start swimming out with a package and it is a living person, but they're unconscious, that completely changes everything. I asked Rick what it felt like to navigate the tight, winding tunnels with such precious cargo in his hands. It was a lot of pressure, but to go back to what I said earlier, the route underwater was incredibly complex and you couldn't see. So all our processing power was really about navigating really no excess capacity thinking capacity to think about the emotion but you you set off you knew you knew he was breathing and you were responsible the moment you got underwater all you're thinking about is where you should be in relation to the passage and the line and protecting his head you didn't really have much much more scope to, to think about that and, and you know every now and again have a sanity check the way I held my boy, his head was quite close, sort of close to my shoulder and below my head. So basically, my head took any and shoulder took any impact and took that off his head. But the other advantage of that is I could hear his exhaust bubbles as he breathed out. They went into the water and you could hear that. My first boy only breathed maybe three times a minute. He was in a very poor state. He, he had a lung infection. In fact, he stopped breathing when I got through that first section and, and went blue. But you can't look at them and see. You can't see anything. So it's just about hearing the bubbles. You knew it was a living person. You could only do your best. That was all All we could say was you can only do your best. And if something goes wrong, unfortunately, then there's pretty little chance of recovering from it. So all your efforts were directed at making sure nothing went wrong and not thinking about the enormity of the task. By 7.55 p.m. on July 8th, their day was done. Harry was the last to exit that section of the cave that day, and he was the last to know that they had all survived. So he he was uh, amazed and, of course, relieved. But we... We hadn't promised 100% success. We said there would be deaths. With the best will in the world, it wasn't going to be 100% successful. We set a rather high bar on that first day. So we actually, we put more pressure on ourselves. The team successfully rescued four boys who were taken to hospital where they were being treated. But inside the cave, nine others awaited their fate. Would they make it out alive? With oxygen levels dropping inside the cave and with more rain on the horizon, there was no time to waste on day two as the rescue team went straight to work. And then as the second day happened, and that was equally successful, now, again, we said there would be deaths. So there was enormous pressure. And the ethics discussion that we had previously was sort of turned on its face. We said we'd bring the majority out, but there would be deaths. And now it looked like we could go and get them all out, but if there had been one fatality in the process, that would have been seen at that point as not a success, but a failure by certain people. Not uh, So that everything, that, that ethic discussion and the expectations really did change by 
been a victim of our own success. Pressure mounted as day two proved to be without much incident, and four more boys were rescued from the cave. I mean, in our favour, that second day, there's not much to talk about the second day rescue, except that it was more efficient than the first day. Everything flowed a lot better. And we had a really good plan. We didn't really modify it. Uh, and so we assumed we'd be very um, slick on that, that last day. They weren't out of the woods, and day three would prove to be the most challenging day yet, as rain put the rescue mission in jeopardy. Not only did the rain came come down, it had come down all night, and we, we all laid in bed all night here in the rain. Now, only of all the people that were there, only John and I had in that sort of rescue team that was bringing the boys out had seen the cave in flood, and we knew how severe it was, and that we wouldn't get back to them if it was in that sort of state. So only we only we had the, had seen it in that in those conditions, and, and we had to you know say we need to be really cautious here. We knew we could get in, do the job quickly and efficiently, and get out before the water started rising. And, and so that that was our our plan on that day. But also going in looking for signs in case it was the water was rising because we knew that if if it suddenly rose really quickly, uh, everyone would be in trouble. There was another thing to consider on the last day. They had an extra person to rescue before the day was done. So the rescue team had to work diligently to get them all out. On the last day, there was five to bring out. There's four boys and the coach. We had uh, arranged for a bit of a, a relay process that Jason was going to bring one guy out and give him to another guy called Jim and then get him out of the way and then Jason can go back and do a full journey with the other. That was a good plan. That worked ex- excellently. We always knew that there was one small boy called, uh, ironically called Titan, uh, and I brought him out. He was the third uh, boy to leave on that day. He, I think, I'm not sure if he was he might have been 10 or he might have been, I can't remember, he was very young and very small. But when there was only Dr. Richard Harris and Jason left, the last boy that came down the slope, although he wasn't the youngest, although he wasn't necessarily the smallest, he had by far the smallest face. It was really narrow uh, and really petite. And this was a problem because we had we only had four good masks Every day, you know, there was four of us divers bringing the boys out and we had four good masks, so that was all perfect. We knew that was going to be a problem, so we actually took in two for the for the fifth charge, so we had an option. The first one, which was the one we would have preferred to have used, just didn't fit on his face. And the other one, which uh, is a, basically a pink's, pink child's mask, that that did fit, but it had to be... It was very, very delicate and could be knocked even more easily than than ever. But it did fit and it did provide air, so that that was it. So really, uh, you know, we talk about chances of something going wrong. Those chances were really high on that very last dive of the very last day, where that mask was very precarious. But I mean, Jason handled it well. We just had to dive ultra, ultra cautiously. By 6.30 p.m. on Tuesday, July 10th, 17 days after they found themselves trapped inside the Tam Luang Cave, 12 boys and their soccer coach were all officially rescued. 
immediately after the last boy came out, we had all waited in the third chamber. Of course, that's when suddenly we could, the relief and the euphoria of what we had done, you know, we couldn't let up our, our caution right until it it, it it was all complete. And at that point, yeah, we did. There was a bottle of Jack Daniels there. And we, we all, uh, there was a bit of a part, let's say a party spirit. But uh, when we went out, of course, everyone was super excited. The parents asked to meet us. Now, the parents had been there the whole duration we had. Um, we were aware they were there. We were aware what they looked like. They saw us. We saw them. But we didn't really engage with them because we didn't really know what the outcome would be. But this seemed like the, the time to engage with them. So they lined up in front of us. They thanked us for bringing their children back. It was all quite emotional. It was an unforgettable day for Josh Morris as well, who watched the rescue mission unfold from the sidelines. On the final day, when everybody, when all the boys came out, that's when people really kind of let their hair down and there was cheering and hugging and, you know, crying. And it was just uh, really incredible. Shortly after the boys were rescued, the families asked Josh for his help. So then I went into the dive room and I said, hey, the parents are out here. Are you guys okay to come out and meet them? They'd love to say thank you. And they all came out. And we had this thank you that I translated where they were kind of lined up opposite each other. And I was I was sitting at the or standing at the at the head of that. And Titan's mom uh, was speaking to me and I was translating as she was speaking. And it was just such an incredible Thing to, to hear her say and, and just to be part of where she was, you know, kind of said something to the light, to the something along the lines of, on behalf of all the parents, uh, we want to thank you for what you've done for our boys. Uh, it's like our boys lost their life and you've given them a new one and they're reborn and they're coming out and will forever be in your debt. And, uh, cannot thank you enough and um so that kind of happened and they all started hugging it was an emotional moment for everyone involved we were cave divers who took had taken cave diving to the extreme we were used to diving in those conditions we were used to problem solving we were used to carrying things underwater and all these elements happened to come together in this case it wasn't it wasn't necessarily a wild card or the crazy idea that it initially may have thought it seemed to be. It was there was an immense amount of planning and uh, collaboration and, and competence there in in that area. Just a day later, heavy rain flooded the cave, and in a matter of weeks, Pongfa, a neighboring town, was also submerged. Meanwhile, the soccer team was in a hospital, and while being treated. They filmed video messages for the rescuers. Hello, now I'm very fine. I'm very thank you so heavy. Thank you so much. The boys were released from hospital on July 18th to instant celebrity documentaries, Hollywood movies. But it's been nearly five years since the Thai cave rescue. And you may be wondering what's happened since. A Thai Navy SEAL who took part in the dramatic rescue contracted a blood infection in the efforts. He had been receiving treatment, but his conditions worsened. Less than a year after the rescue, he died in the winter of 2019. And just this year, 
there was a shocking development involving one of the boys on the team. Duong Pech Pomtep was better known as Dom, and he was the wild boar soccer team's captain and won a scholarship to attend a soccer academy in the UK. He was just 17 years old when he was found unconscious in his dorm room. The Northern Regional Branch of the Thai government said Dom died of a head injury due to an accident. His former team members were gutted to learn about his death. One of them wrote on Facebook, Rest in peace, bro. We always have each other, the 13 of us. To this day, the world looks at the Thai cave rescue as a miracle. But Rick Stanton, one of the minds behind it, sees it differently. I mean, I always argue it's not a miracle. There was a lot of things. There was a lot of science. There was a lot of uh, experience. There was a lot of competence, a lot of collaboration and, and courage even. But I wouldn't, well, I wouldn't call it a miracle. There were a succession of fortuitous events. So I'll give it that. The fact that the water wasn't deep, the fact that it was warm, the fact that we were brought in, you know, all the fact that we were given, eventually given control. People say, has it changed me? Uh, I would argue, no, it's not changed me as a person, but it has changed how I interact with the world. I'm getting uh, amazing opportunities, working film. You know, I always had a book in me, uh, but now this book had a wider audience. Aquanaut, A Life Beneath the Surface, takes readers behind the scenes at the Thai cave rescue. Which is, really, not just the, the tale of the rescue, but it's the backstory, how we formed the team, where we were, where we practiced, which led to us being successful. Global News What Happened To is written and produced by me, Erica Vela, with producer Dila Velasquez. Our audio producers are Rosalind Kafour and Rob Johnson. Also, special thanks goes to Drew Hasselbeck, supervising national online journalist for Global News. A special thanks also goes out to Harrison Cook, our intern. Let us know what you thought of this episode and please share it with a friend. It will help us grow the show and bring you more incredible stories. You can also help us out by giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can also reach out to me personally. We are always looking for stories. So if there's a new story you want us to revisit, you can reach me on Twitter at Erica Bella or email me at erica.vella at globalnews.ca. We'll see you next time.